I have a theory. If I was to ask a hundred of today's children's book authors and illustrators to name a book that had a profound impact on them, I bet an unusually large number of those authors and illustrators would mention the work of E.B. White. Specifically, they would probably mention Charlotte's Web. I cannot count the number of times I've heard authors say that E.B. White's books have made such a huge difference on their life and on their writing. I'm a big E.B. White fan myself, and I love Charlotte's Web. In fact, if you wonder how you can share the beauty and delight of Charlotte's Web with your own sensitive readers, you want to listen to Read Aloud Revival episode 202 for kids who don't like sad stories. You and your kids might be able to think a little differently about sad storylines after hearing that episode. But Charlotte's Web isn't actually my favorite book by E.B. White, even though it's his most famous. His second most famous, Stuart Little, that one's not my favorite either. I love them both, but my favorite is The Trumpet of the Swan. And that's what we're reading this spring in RER Premium for our family book club. Now, there are layers upon layers of delights in this book, from references to Louis Armstrong, to nature journaling, to mapping the United States, and listening to Louis's father's incredibly hilarious monologues. It also has a killer first line. Have you read it? I'll read it to you. Walking back to camp through the swamp, Sam wondered whether to tell his father what he had seen. I mean, who's going to stop reading there, right? (laughs) Um, Of course, in RER Premium, I'm teaching a WOW, a Writers on Writing workshop this spring for young writers all about first lines. What makes good first lines? What makes us know we've got to keep reading? And then how you can use first lines from the books that are on your shelves for my absolutely favorite creative writing prompt my favorite one that I use all the time. So we're going to dig into it in our WOW Writers on Writing this spring. So join us in premium for that. We are going all in on E.B. White (laughs) this season. Um, So in honor of that, I thought I'd share an old, old episode from the podcast, a best of Read Aloud Revival, if you will. This is an interview with Melissa Sweet from way, way back in 2017. If you're new around here, you might not have heard this one. Melissa Sweet is easily one of the best illustrators working in children's publishing today. Her award-winning work is collage work. It is beautiful. We have so many of Melissa's books on our book list, and I think her work just keeps getting better and better. In this episode, five years ago now, she came to talk to me about writing her children's biography of E.B. White, which was called Some Writer. I didn't want you to miss this one, especially if you're an RAR Premium member and you're reading The Trumpet of the Swan with your kids this spring. So enjoy this best of RAR episode, and I'll see you on the other side of my conversation with Melissa Sweet. Many of us are quick to name our favorite children's authors, but so often the artists who illustrated those books are what we really recognize on the shelf. So today we have quite a treat for you. Melissa Sweet is an award-winning illustrator who recently published a biography of the one and only E.B. White, that infamous author of some of the best children's lit in history, Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, Trumpet of the Swan. 
Melissa Sweet has illustrated nearly 100 picture books and nonfiction titles, books like the Baby Bear series, written by Jane Yolen, the Pinky and Rex series, The Boy Who Drew Birds, Brave Girl, goodness, the list goes on and on and on. She's received a Caldecott Honor Medal and two New York Times Best Illustrated Citations. And she's also the author of books like Balloons Over Broadway and the new book we're going to be talking about today, Some Writer, The Story of E.B. White. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm thrilled to be here. And you just said something. You said the one and only E.B. White, and that would have been a great title for the book, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, but that some writer was so clever. I mean, it's yes, just such a clever was good, but, but that would have been a good subtitle even. So th- I'm happy to hear that. Thanks. Well, I was just, you know, I found out about your book because I was just cruising around looking at kids' books like I do on the internet. And when I saw that you were coming out with a new book by E.B. White, I knew I had to get in touch with you. And it's brand new. Just came out last week when we're airing this on October 11th. It just came out on the 4th, right? Correct. So before we launch into talking about E.B. White and the book and how you make your books, do you want to tell us just a little bit more about you and how you work and your dog? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, sure. I have been illustrating for a very long time. And somewhere in the middle of my career, I started doing more collage and assemblage work. Always the books are very different. But I was beginning to get more than picture books, nonfiction books or historical fiction. And those seemed to call for something else. So for a number of years now, I've been doing wonderfully fun and intricate type of collage work. And I live in Portland, Maine. We just moved to Portland and I have two really great dogs. One's a rescue from the Hurricane Katrina down in Louisiana. And she's so sweet. She's a very sweet thing. And then we just got a great new dog named Ruby who, so when I'm not in the studio, we're getting exercise. Yeah, (laughs) I bet you are. (laughs) That's what my life looks like. You're right. That's so great. So then tell me, because your books are this beautiful combination of drawing and painting, right? My, I was kind of like flipping through the ones that I have here, trying to figure out exactly the, all the different mediums that you use. And then, of course, this gorgeous collage work that you do. So tell me a little bit about the different art forms you use when you make a book. The collage work started off using found objects, bottle caps and little bits of wood and shells and anything that seemed pertinent to the story. So it's safe to say it really went full tilt when I did The Boy Who Drew Birds about John James Audubon. Mm -hmm. Part of it happened with the research because that was the first time I traveled to see someplace in conjunction with getting ready to illustrate a book. And father had a house in Mill Grove, Pennsylvania that became a tourist. It's open to the public, I should say. So I went there to see his studio, bedroom, the gigantic prints of his watercolors that are there, and just the accoutrements of his life. That is, to my mind, hard to translate in two dimensions. So I thought, wow, when I'm going to recreate what I think the desk of his studio might look like. So I had desiccated animals and bits of bones and shells and leaves and sticks and anything I thought, little bits of drawing, just like my studio. And it seemed to bring him to life for readers in a way that was really satisfying, that you felt what it might have felt like to be him. So that continued on. When I did Balloons Over Broadway, the main character, Tony Sarg, the man who invented the Macy's Prairie Balloons, he's nothing like 
Audubon. So what should those materials look like? And in that case, I made paper mache puppets and used wood and very simple materials, old children's blocks, to make a bunch of toys that I was going to photograph for the book. Or I have photographed, I should say. I don't do the photography, but my work is very three-dimensional, like three-dimensional assemblages. So they get photographed. In conjunction with the three-dimensional pieces, there's flat pieces. So I'll do a painting of in for a spread, two dimensions, and that becomes merged with the three-dimensional pieces in the book. And we have some very talented people in the production department who make it feel seamless because it could look very chopped up, mm-hmm. but and it looks like one person did it, and it's all the, it feel it has the same feeling, and not only in the textures and materials, but in the color and the way it's reproduced. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. That, I really uh, feel like the pages jump out at you. Like you could spend a lot of time just looking at each page. And like you said, it looks seamless. It's just astounding how beautiful. Yeah. It kind of takes you by surprise. Every time you turn the page, you think, what am I? It's like a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just to reiterate too, not every book calls for the same materials and not every book calls for collage at all. Sometimes a purely painted book is the right solution to portray this material. So I spend quite a bit of time thinking about that and playing around with that before I settle in on how I'm going to begin. Wow. Okay. So I think the first encounter I had with your art was probably those Eboo counting card or counting birds wall cards. I ran into those on a little weekend getaway I went on with my husband and I had to grab them for our schoolroom. We homeschool our kids and I had to put them up because they're so beautiful. And then I thought, I need to find this artist online and discovered that you had illustrated Jane Yolen's books. And then, of course, the John James Audubon book was something that we had, I already had on my shelf. So I just put the, uh, putting it all together, I thought, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. So when you get a new project to work on, you're saying that you basically take, you just kind of play with it for a little bit to decide exactly what medium is going to tell the best story. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yes. And the research especially for instance, a nonfiction book mm-hmm. will help me dictate. I'll, I'll, I'll read and see uh, bits of people's lives that I think could be incorporated into the collages. I did a book with Jen Bryant, the author, Jen Bryant, the title's A Splash of Red, yes. the story of Horace Pippin. So that was a very different book because that he's an artist. The trick is not to become Horace Pippin, not to mimic his type of art, but to look for clues within the art. So what I found about his work, for instance, was there was a flattened perspective and he used a lot of pattern, especially wood grain pattern. Also, there were tiny splashes of the color red. Those were my clues. And that's how the book began. That's true of every book. And that's part of the fun of it, though, is is really honing in on and finding the exact right recipe for beginning the art. And that's what makes each one unique and that's and fresh and just a lot of fun to make. That's so fun. So do you work with a lot of the same authors over and over? Does it seem, I know I've noticed that you've, you've worked with Jane Yolen and Jane Yolen is actually going to be featured at the Reload Revival. We're going to introduce her face to face with our community in an author access event in 2017. Super excited about that. But do you find yourself working a lot with the same authors or does that just constantly change or how does that work? That changes from year to year. Sometimes, for instance, with Jane, we did the Baby Bears books together. And then I just did a fourth with her, You Nest Here With Me, written by Jane and her daughter, Heidi. But 
And then Jen Bryant and I did three books together. More often, though, it's one book together, one book per author. And for whatever reason, we go on to the next thing. But that marriage of author and illustrator happens within the publishing house. I mean, an author can say, I'd love to work with so-and-so mm-hmm. if they're available. And sometimes we're just not available. There's a probably a short list of who could illustrate this book. But I think because each book is so different for each author, they look to have that marriage be special and carry the material through in a new way. So I think it's very careful. I've read that even as a child, you loved art. And we have a lot of listeners to the podcast, young listeners in the families that listen to our podcast who yeah. are aspiring writers and illustrators. In fact, I have a aspiring children's book illustrator in my own home who's 12 years old and wants to grow up to write or illustrate children's books. I'm just curious to know about how your love for art as a child, how did that grow into what you're doing now as an adult? Maybe you could tell that story for our young listeners. Sure. Well, I grew up in... New Jersey, where we were on our bicycles all day and played kick the can at night. We had a big crowd of kids in our neighborhood. We had a wonderful public library and we used to ride our bikes to the library and come home with books. But to be honest, I wasn't such a great reader. I loved books, but not that wasn't my go-to place. I always wanted to be making things. My mom was a great sewer. My grandmother was constantly doing crafty stuff. My father did carpentry, so having tools and glue and construction paper was all around me. And also I had a lot of kits, and I'm sure these kits, it's almost like it's almost like the pieces from that I do for Ibu are an extension of my childhood, the matching games and, and all those pu- the wonderful puzzles and gorgeous pieces she'd come out of Ibu were a little bit like when I was a kid and I played with Spirograph and Etch-a-Sketch and Paint by Numbers. So those toys are really design tools. And they taught me a tremendous amount. They occupied my unending energy that I had as a kid. So I think it was- That you probably still wish you had, right? If you're anything like me. (laughs) I think that they were very satisfying. It's very satisfying to play with a spirograph. So I had a lot of fun doing that. When it came to, I never really thought I'd be anything but an artist. It was after college- discovering that I loved painting and drawing best, that I was just looking for ways to portray my art, doing anything, uh, greeting cards. You know, I was, I understood that an artist had to be entrepreneurial. So I was looking for ways to do that. And I loved children's books. The children's book illustration in the late eighties was kind of a renaissance. I think the printing process had changed and we were seeing David McCauley and Chris Van Alsberg and a lot of wonderful people just come in onto the scene that we're making these books that just look like nothing else. Yeah. So that's a little bit how it happened. David McCauley has a special place in my heart. We just chatted with him at Read Aloud Revival in membership, introduced him to the kids. He did an author access event for us last weekend and he like sketched, showed us how he did his sketches and how he drew the woolly mammoth on screen live and then sent me the sketches in the mail. It was like, I went and wow. checked my mailbox and I think <laughs> I, I could not wipe the smile off. But my husband is building a frame for it. That's how excited I was. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That is very, that, yeah, I, I would too. <laughs> He's such a man. He is like such a great man. I just, yeah, it was such a treat to meet him. So and his work is really astonishing. So. 
Yeah. Yeah, it truly is. Okay. So you do lots of biographies, which I love how you tell the story of a person that makes it really come alive. I mean, this is what I think history really should do for our kids, which is tell a story of a person in time and the world around them and make it come alive for them so they can really feel like what it might have been to live there. But you've written a book and I just got this one because I hadn't seen it before. The Right Word, which is a story about the man behind Roget's thesaurus. Well, Roget and his thesaurus, that's the subtitle. You said A Splash of Red, which is a book about Horace Pippin, Brave Girl. And of course, this new one about E.B. White, Balloons Over Broadway, about the man behind the Macy's Day Parade. So tell me, how do you choose who to write about when you're writing a biography? or illustrating a biography? Almost all of those books that you just listed came to me from other authors. And I, again, I, I'm guessing it came from my work in The Boy Who Drew Birds. Yes. Okay. So publishers find, found me and working with Jen Bryant on, we did a book, A River of Words, the story of William Carlos Williams, the poet. That was a very interesting project and probably a defining moment. There were big shoes to fill. And so you look at these people and wonder how can you portray them with the magnet to reflect the magnitude of what they've done with their life. And with William Carlos Williams, and not unlike E.B. White, it's a little bit intimidating to find the right formula of how to illustrate their work. So one thing that happened around that time was I was participating in my public library. There was an event around making altered books. So we, I had this big box of books in my studio that was slated for the landfill. You know, once a library has a big book sale, the books and the books just don't sell for the third time. They get a lot of them they get thrown away, but we were looking to give these books to artists and have them come up with all different ways of, you know, repurposing or up, um, what's the word? Upcycling. Upcycling, thank you. Upcycling yeah, yeah. stuff. So I began to use parts of books in my art, and that hasn't, that I still love to do that. I use the front of the book covers, I use the end papers, I use the interiors of the book for collages or to paint on top of. So those were some of the things I began to use. And for whatever reason, they fit these biographies really well. That was a, just a great beginning for me. So especially with William Carlos Williams, that took quite a bit of research for me to get to know William Carlos Williams better. I traveled to where he lived and read a ton of his books. The best way to illustrate him, to my mind, was to illustrate the poems that Jen had within the text. Mm -hmm. So here's where this lovely dialogue starts to happen with an author. I approached her and said, "What?" and the art director too, and said, what if we... Instead of illustrating, you know, this illustrating the story, so to speak, his poems become part of the part of the story as full page illustrations. That was a very different feeling than coming at it. Um, oh, he's running through the woods. Well, is there a poem that talks about that that would also portray that? And do we have to be quite so literal? That happened in my research with E.B. White in early readings, especially his the letters of E.B. White. So Letters of E.B. White is a collection from the time he was a very young boy up until he died. And it's a thick book of his letters. And he had the wherewithal to use carbon paper as a youth too. When he went out west, he took a 
cross-country road trip and all those letters written home and written to his friends were all on carbon paper. So there's a record of them. And that was pretty remarkable. In crafting the story, I knew that E.B. White said it so much more eloquently and heartfelt and right from, it was right from him that I had to use his essays and quotes peppered throughout my text to give an even deeper story. In the early reading of the letters of E.B. White, it was evident that to be able to excerpt these letters and use them within the story was going to give readers a better sense of who E.B. White was. Mm, yeah. And and how will a reader know they're at one of his essays? So being a visual person, I wanted to separate that out and not just with a different font. So I thought, well, I'm going to type these up on a manual typewriter, just like he would have done. <laughs> and then I'll illustrate them. And that was probably the first thing I thought of that was going to separate me from E.B. White and give the readers a little more depth and insight. So it's kind of exciting when you hit on something like that. That's a decision I stuck with. There's many things are trial and error and I discard, but that was one of them. And then the chapter openers to have these, they're almost in a collage assemblage, the chapter openers. Yeah. They started out with just some hand lettering for the title, but I thought, no, this is such an opportunity to have even more illustration or to set the tone for these chapter openers. And the book is peppered with manuscripts. So again, how does the reader know when they're at an archival piece or a manuscript? Those are all on top of a photograph on top of a very pale green paper. The reader might not say, oh, I'm here I am at this uh, archival piece. But there's a consistency throughout the book, and that becomes part of the design process. So as the illustrator and author, it's not just about making the pictures and writing, and I go back and forth between those all the time, but it's the design. The design helps us marry those two. That and makes that sense, because when I was reading the book, I never was confused about when you were speaking or when he was speaking. That was always very clear to me, but I didn't stop and think about why that, how I knew that so easily. Good. But you put that's a lot of good. thought into it. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Good. Yeah. If it's invisible, that all the better because it's, it's not meant to scream. It, it's meant to go down the road, you know, smoothly and not have it be a bumpy road full of potholes. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell me, what was it like to research this book? Because you wrote and illustrated this book. So I'm sure, I mean, first of all, tell me how long it took you to research and then tell me maybe a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, th this book took me about three years, maybe more uh, from start from the inception to finished art. And the minute I had the idea and it was just sort of a random idea, I was looking for my next book and I thought, you know, I was wanting to, Again, continue to explore how you portray someone's life in the two dimensions of a, well, a book is actually three dimensions, but on the two dimensional page. And I thought, wow, if I could do anybody, I who would I do? And E.B. White popped in my head, and I was gone, hook, line, and sinker, with questions popping up right away. How did he get to that first line of Charlotte's Web? Was he a good reader as a kid? What kind of kid was he? And of course, what were the names of all of his dogs and all those tiny details that were interesting to me. So I went right home and pulled out that Letters of E.B. White, 
working for about a year trying to figure out his life. I create a timeline on my wall right away and begin to, I'll put up anything, anything, a found object or a post-it note or anything that feels pertinent to the story. I'll start to stick up on my wall in the time frame, you know, from 1899 to 1985 when he lived. And that helps me sort out what happened when. Now, some biographies are an anecdote or a snippet of somebody's life. But early on, in order to tell the story, for instance, of how he got to his three children's books, to my mind, there had to be a lot of backstory. There was so much of his life, his love of nature, his caring for animals, his love of Maine and having a farm, all pointed into the direction of where he went. Even Stuart Little living in New York City, um, his granddaughter Martha tells me E.B. White is Stuart Little. So I trust that comes from a good source. Oh, that's too much fun. Okay. (laughs) So if there's a lot of, there's always a hundred times more information than we can use. But so a lot of things get lost. You know, you have to be set aside. They might be riveting to me, but they don't support the story. So ultimately, this is E.B. White's story. And yes, it's told through my eyes as the biographer, but it's always in service to the story, even though there's things I have to let go of that, to be honest, once I let go of them and just keep honing in on the book, I completely forget what they were even. Why was I so worried about that at the time? But oh, yeah. So, yeah. So you just you begin to know the quote you picked, the photograph you picked, one picks the art. It all starts to feel just right. Like you're making a jigsaw puzzle. The pieces are fitting together. I love that because the way you talk about it, I can tell that you take it so seriously. This is a, like a, a big task, but you also sound so playful, like putting together a jigsaw puzzle or fiddling around with the different elements of art. So I can hear in your voice when you're talking about it, the joy that you get from making books like this one. Yes. Yes. Now, how long did this project take you? This took a good three years. And I was so, boy, I was about a year into this project before I was very public about it. And even then I wasn't tremendously public. I, you know, my husband knew, obviously the publisher knew, but it was almost like I had an uncut diamond sitting on my drafting table that I was so precious that I didn't want too many opinions about it. I didn't want people to say, oh, you've got to include this essay. You've got to include that. Are you going to talk about that? And even I didn't even contact the White family for permissions till about a year in. And I, to be honest, I knew that anybody could write a biography, but I didn't know, <laughs> I should know this, but I didn't know it, that not anybody can have permissions. So to use the archival materials or the photographs had to be granted from the White family. Oh, I didn't know that either. Well, yeah. And I gave her a very slight dummy. My dummies are notoriously cryptic. And because I don't even know what I'm going to be doing. I just have an idea, Mm -hmm. but I have to make a dummy for the publisher. So I have to know where the words are going to go, but I certainly don't know what the art is going to look like. Let me interrupt you just for a second. You you have to send a dummy to your publisher before you sell the book, before they get behind you. Is that what you're saying? Well, not exactly. Okay. This was we they bought this on the idea alone. Okay. But at a certain point they say we're talking about for instance things like how many pages is it gonna be? So I need so we say, okay, let's start with eighty pages and see how that feels. And so at that point I'll make a dummy. Got it. And 
Yeah. And I'll begin to place the words or, you know, the front matter, for instance, the title page and copyright and the back matter. We know we're going to have sources. So it's very rough, but it gives us a sense. I see. I had one of those when Martha White said, let's get together and in my studio and we'll talk further. And I knew Martha slightly because we live in the same town and our paths have crossed and she's been nothing but kind and supportive of my books and her children had my books. So she knew of my work and she knew of my biographies. And the White family was just unbelievably generous. They granted me permission. She said, sure, I will. And I promise to do a very good job. (laughs) But then the wonderful things started happening. Martha said, oh, I've got a scrapbook. I think you should come see. And I said, yes, I would love to see that. She stopped by my studio with some home movies. This was just, it's mesmerizing the privilege it is to be able to have this kind of resource and to know that I can do anything, absolutely anything to portray this author, this beloved author. I have everything at my fingertips. So it was, um, that's how that happened. And once I had access to those materials, I went to Cornell University and looked at all the archival materials, the photographs, his papers and manuscripts. And that, again, it's hard to describe the privilege it is and that I get to do this for my work. It personally was not just an education, but a way of looking at the world that I didn't have before. To have the time and resources to delve into E.B. White and his writing, I, I hardly think I would have done it without this book in mind. But yeah, so I grew as an artist and author from the chance to do this book. That's amazing. So there's three books E.B. Wright wrote. Of course, we've got Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, and The Trumpet of the Swan. Do you have a favorite? Wow, they're each so good. It's like saying, which is which is your favorite dog? Which is your I, favorite child? Yeah, yeah, I know. They're so good for each for different reasons, but... I'm going to say Charlotte's Web okay, because it has a universal theme and it's pitch perfect that every word in that book feels to me like, I don't know if you have snow where you live, but when you're walking along and you have these the first snow of winter and the snowflakes start to fall and they land quietly and perfectly. And that's what that book feels like to me. It's like snow on a path and the first snow on a path in the winter. It's just, yeah, I I mean, I wondered, I wish he were alive for me to ask, how did it feel to him when it was done? Did he know what a masterpiece it was? He must have had some sense that he had gotten it right or gotten it, you know, pitch perfect, I think. You know, it's funny because I was a voracious reader as a child and I don't remember a lot of books that I read or I don't have specific memories. You know, I can look at a book and go, I remember reading that as a kid, but I don't remember actually reading it. I remember where I was sitting when I read Charlotte's Web for the first time. It was, I remember thinking I have just encountered something different than other things that I've encountered before. As an adult, I think Trumpet of the Swan is my favorite. And I don't know, I was trying to think of why is that? I think his characterizations in that book, like the father swan, I just, it makes me laugh out loud every time I think of the Louis' father just starting to talk. Um, His characters are so well, I mean, they are in all of his books, but Trumpet of the Swan holds a special place in my heart. When I read it to my kids a few years ago, 
it must have been about five years ago, we actually went and saw trumpeter swans that were living in a nature reserve near us. And it just took the book to a whole new level. Yeah. That is really fantastic. Yeah. Trumpeter the swan, to my mind, it represents that journey he took from, from his home in Mount Vernon, New York to Seattle after he left college, because he went to Billings, Montana. He took a little side trip up to Canada. And I'm not sure if that's the trip he saw trumpeter swans because he I'm sure they were there. The impetus for the story was from a New York Times article on trumpeter swans. But I love that, too. It definitely feels like a journey into another place for that for Sam Beaver, the main character. It's pretty special. Well, yeah. I live in the Northwest. I live in Spokane, Washington, which is eastern, you know, uh, several hours east of Seattle. But that's where we saw the trumpeter swan. So I wonder if it was uh-huh. when he was up here. Maybe that's the real reason why when I read that story, it feels like home to me. That could make a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yes. Okay. And did you cry? When, oh, sorry. Yeah. Did you cry when you read Charlotte's Web? I mean, oh, what yes. was that like for you when Charlotte died? I remember as a child feeling like this overwhelming sense of no, 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 and weeping at the same time knowing it was just right. Like that all was right with the world. Things are exactly how they're supposed to be. So it was wow. like this incredible sense of grief because you love her so much. And also at the same time, realizing there was something bigger going on that I wouldn't have been able to describe to you as a child, but I could definitely feel inside my bones. That's a beautiful thing you just said. That's really true. Yeah. Well, this has been such a treat. Before we go, I was wondering if you could talk to our young listeners who are aspiring writers, aspiring illustrators, and tell them or their parents some kind of advice or something that you could tell them as they continue on experimenting with words and art. Read, read a lot, or listen to books, or be read to, because there's something about the music of language that we absorb whether we know it or not. So even if, like me or E.B. White, even was not a great reader, there's still something about the language of words that's so delightful. And I listen to his books much more than I read them. So I, for three years, I listened to them incessantly. But so I would say that and. As far as making art, I have a wonderful quote on my studio wall by Alexander Calder, and it says that art should be happy and not lugubrious. And I think that's... <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I'm going to use that word. I don't even know what it means, but you're going to have to tell me now. <laughs> the context, what it means, right? Yeah, so not heavy or sad. And I think that it's true in making art and in viewing art and in surrounding ourselves with art. So it's not... As kids, it's fun to go see art and and make art and be immersed in it in all different ways. And bottom line, it should be a lot of fun. Ah, isn't she such a delight? <laughs> her love of E.B. White's work comes through on every page of her book, Some Writer. Now, in RAR Premium, we're reading E.B. White's The Trumpet of the Swan this spring, like I mentioned at the top of the show. I'm teaching a first lines writing workshop for young writers. Uh, This one's probably going to be best for ages 10 to 18. And it's going to give your kids some great creative writing prompts based on first lines that they find in books around your house. But it's also going to just teach them what makes a first line such a good first line. Um, We're also, for another family book club, we're also reading a picture book biography by Barbara Herker and Laura Castillo called A Boy, a Mouse, and a Spider. It is lovely. It teaches us more about E.B.'s um, childhood and life and his 
journey to becoming the author. We know him as um, as the author of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web and Trumpet of the Swan. We're digging in deep, and your kids are going to learn so much and have really memorable and wonderful uh, memories of these book clubs. So if you're not an RAR Premium member, head to RARpremium.com. You'll get your Trumpet of the Swan Family Book Club right away because we're doing that one now. And then you'll have access to um, the Writers on Writing Workshop, all about first lines. And then on April 1st, we will drop the Family Book Club Guide for A Boy, A Mouse, and a Spider, which is the picture book biography about E.B. White. Um, and I want to tell you, our newly updated Family Book Club Guides, the ones we kind of did an adjustment and update for 2023, and the feedback we're getting from members is really fabulous. They are there's something in every book club for ages five to through 18. They can absolutely be used as your language arts curriculum. These family book clubs include the three pillars of a really good family book club, which are reading, relating, and remembering a whole bunch of rabbit trails across the curriculum, copy work, poetry. Oh my goodness. Their grammar. There's lots of good stuff in there. So if you want to raise kids who love to read and who have warm, fond memories of reading aloud. You don't want to miss our family book clubs and your kids can actually use the reading time they have in their school day to fall more in love with books, not less. <laughs> so that the grammar instruction and the copy work and the literature conversations make them want to read more. That's always our goal. So don't miss those. You can get your family book club guides and join us at rarpremium.com. Okay, let's go hear from the kids, shall we? What are you kids reading and loving lately? Hi, my name is Ashley Bailey and I am 10 years old. I live in Layton, Utah, and the book I recommend is the Stolen Luck series by Jacqueline Weist. It is really fun. It is where a leprechaun steals her luck. So, bye. Hi, I'm William. I'm eight, and I live in the state of Nebraska. I like Paddington because it's about a little bear, and he goes on a bunch of adventures. Hi, my name is Ayanna Bay. I am five years old. I live in Clayton, Utah. The book I love is Clover's Luck by Katie Dole. What's your name? Abby. Where are you from? Nebraska. How old are you? Five. What book do you want to recommend? A Solvent Like Jesus. Why do you like it? Because this purple fish gets hot and the crab helps him. Hi, my name's Henry and I'm seven years old. I'm from Ontario and my favorite book is Don't Be Afraid Little Pip by Carva Wilson. What's your name? Billy. How old are you? Uh, for what? Ontario. So goofy night. Jacob. What's your name? Charlie. How old are you? Five. Where do you live? Ontario, Canada. What's your favorite book? Buster's Trip to Victory Game by David Earnhardt. 
Hi, my name is Bradley Bailey. I'm eight years old. I live in Layton, Utah. The book I recommend is Edge of Extinction by Laura Martin. Why I like it is because there's a bunch of dinosaurs that came back by a scientist using its DNA. And the dinosaurs nearly, like, they take over the entire Earth except something called the compound is an underground fortress that dinosaurs can't go in. Bye. Brilliant. Thank you, kids. I hope you enjoyed this best of episode. It was really fun for me to listen back to this one and share it with you. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you know what to do, right? Go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. So many of us feel overwhelmed in our homeschool. There's a lot to do, and it feels like every child needs something a little different. The good news is, you are the best person on the planet to help your kids learn and grow, and home is the best place to fall in love with books. I'm Sarah McKenzie. I'm a homeschooling mother of six, the author of Teaching from Rest and the Read Aloud family, and I'm the host here on the Read Aloud Revival podcast. This podcast has been downloaded over 8 million times. And you know, I think it's because so many of us want the same things. We want our kids to be readers, to love reading. We want our homes to be warm and happy havens of learning and connection. We know that raising our kids is the most important work of our lives. That's kind of overwhelming, right? You are not alone. In Read Aloud Revival Premium, we offer family book clubs, a vibrant community, and Circle with Sarah coaching for you, the homeschooling mom, so you can teach from rest, homeschool with confidence, and raise kids who love to read. Our family book clubs are a game changer for your kids' relationship with books. We provide you with a family book club guide and an opportunity for your kids to meet the author or illustrator live on screen. So all you have to do is get the book, read it with your kids, and make those meaningful and lasting connections. They work for all ages, from your youngest kids to your teens. Every month, our community also gathers online for a circle with Sarah to get ideas and encouragement around creating the homeschooling life you crave. They're the most effective way I know to teach from rest and build a homeschool life you love. We want to help your kids fall in love with books, and we want to help you fall in love with homeschooling. Join us today at rarpremium.com.